Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, August 13th, we are studying Judges chapter 20, verses 29 through 48. Civil war has erupted in Israel. Eleven tribes have allied against one, the tribe of Benjamin. They are defenders of a terrible sin committed in their midst. And though the numbers have been stacked against them, they have held their ground. They've beaten back the rest of Israel twice. But the Lord has promised Israel success on the third day. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us Pastor John Walla. Pastor Walla serves at Bethel Lutheran Church in Bismarck, North Dakota. Pastor Walla, welcome to Sharper Iron. It's a great honor to be with you, Tim. Thank you. As we get started this morning, let's let's talk context. We're, we're picking up right in the middle of a narrative. We don't finish that narrative today, so we, we need to know what's going on. Uh, help us with context, generally in Judges, and, and particularly for this section that we're in. Sure. So we're coming into, or we're right in the middle of the final section of the whole book of Judges. And um, there's an indicator for us with this phrase that uh, starts showing up here toward the end of the book. Uh, the first time it shows up is back in chapter 17, and then again in 18, and now leading in and kind of bookending this final section. So that phrase is this. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. And most of the time, it also includes this other phrase, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So uh, here we are in chapter 20, uh, but just one chapter back, the beginning of chapter 19, um, that's where we have that phrase, in those days, there was no king in Israel. And then the very last verse of the whole book um, is going to have that phrase, in those days, there was no king in Israel. So the main events of this final section, they deal with this just disgusting, horrible sin. It's done by the worthless men that live in uh, in this tribe of Benjamin. And um, and this is one of the tri- 12 tribes of Israel. And then we have this, as you said, this civil war that breaks out between the whole nation of Israel, the 11 tribes against their own brothers, the Benjaminites. So it all began when this Levite man and his concubine are traveling, and they stopped to stay in the city of Gibeah. And this was land that was uh, portioned off for each of the tribes, so this is part of the land of Benjamin. So that night, as they're staying with their host, the Levite's concubine is raped and sexually abused by these worthless men of Gibeah. And she's so mistreated she dies. She's laying there on the the threshold of the house in the the morning. And it's disgusting. It's hard to even imagine the level of depravity and the wickedness which these people have stooped to. In fact, I would argue, even though there's a ton of sadness and ugly display of sin all the way through the book of Judges, that this is the lowest and saddest display of human wickedness 
and rebellion against the Lord shown in the entire book of Judges. And that is saying something. So uh, this Levite, he takes this, uh, his now deceased concubine home, and he takes a knife, and he divides his concubine into 12 pieces, and then sends each one of these pieces with some sort of message to all of the tribes of Israel to inform them of this horrible sin, this abomination that has been committed. And when the tribes learn of it, they come together and they decide that the tribe of Benjamin and particularly the city of Gibeah must give up these men. And so they gather this huge army, 400,000 men to unite in, if need be, a war against Benjamin, hoping that they will give these men up. But the Benjaminites will not. They also muster their own army, which is much smaller. But as you mentioned in our intro, they are holding their own up until our reading today. They are winning. Israel's losing. Israel's being slaughtered. And twice, the Israelites have asked the Lord whether they should keep on fighting against Benjamin. And the Lord has said yes. Only this last time, which follows after their repentance and fasting and sacrifices that are offered, now the Lord says, tomorrow I will give them into your hand. And that's the verse that then leads us into our reading for today. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pastor Wall, I, I think as as we lay out the text that we've got today, just very briefly, the text that we're going to see is this last battle in this civil war, and it's described twice. You get a broad picture overview in the first few verses, verses 29 through the middle of 36, and then in the middle of 36, the author repeats it, and he gives us a bit more detail. And, and so I think what we'll do as, as we look at it today is, is I'll read that first half on this side of the break, and we'll talk sort of major themes. And then when we get to the other side of the break, I'll read the second half, and we'll just continue that conversation just as a way of, of laying it out for our listeners this morning. So let, let's go ahead and read Judges chapter 20, beginning at verse 29. Again, as you said, this is now going to be the, the third day the people of Israel have been promised success by the Lord. So Israel set men in ambush around Gibeah, and the people of Israel went up against the people of Benjamin on the third day and set themselves in array against Gibeah as at other times. And the people of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city. And as at other times, and as at other times, they began to strike and kill some of the people in the highways, one of which goes up to Bethel and the other to Gibeah, and in the open country, about 30 men of Israel. And the people of Benjamin said, They are routed before us as at the first. But the people of Israel said, Let us flee and draw them away from the city to the highways. And all the men of Israel rose up out of their place and set themselves in array at Baal Tamar. And the men of Israel, who were in ambush, rushed out of their place from Marah Giba. And there came against Gibeah ten thousand chosen men out of all Israel, and the battle was hard. But the Benjaminites did not know that disaster was close upon them. And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel, and the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day. All these were men who drew the sword. So the people of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. All right, so we'll, we'll pause there for this side of the program. That is the broad picture view of this final battle. Pastor Walla, before we 
like dig in to this particular description, just to, in terms of the overall picture that we've got here. I mean, think of think of where we started with all this. There's a Levite, there's his concubine, and and just an attempted reconciliation between the two of them has all of a sudden gone into this. I mean, a huge civil war. What? How did this happen? <laughs> Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's one that um, at various times throughout um, biblical accounts and also even in our own day, uh, we might ask the same question. Um, how in the world did we get to this current state of affairs? And so the first point that we would want to make here is that sin affects everyone. Um, it's not just like I do my sin and uh, I suffer my own consequences for it. Um, it. It affects everyone. It's a very communal thing. And we especially learned this lesson um, in uh, the account of Joshua and uh, their first victory, their first conquest as they come into the promised land at Jericho. So back in Je Joshua chapter 7, there's the account of a man named Achan. And after that victory over Jericho, the Israelites were commanded that they were not to take anything. Uh, the Lord said, the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. And they were even warned specifically that taking any of the devoted things would bring trouble upon them and destruction to the camp of Israel, which um, even sounds uh, like this foreshadowing. And in fact, uh, Achan uh, is that one that didn't listen. He saw and he thought, this, don't, this will only be between me and, and the Lord. Nobody else has to know. In secret, he steals some silver. He steals this coat and some other items, and he hides them in his tent. And so, again, it's just Achan alone. But he, uh, when it's described about how all this happened, it doesn't just talk about Achan and his sin. It talks about the whole nation of Israel. It says, but the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. So notice that while it mentions Achan, it doesn't say that Achan broke faith or that the Lord's anger burned against Achan. It says, the people of Israel broke faith, and the Lord's anger burned against the people of Israel. And so here's the connection to our text for today, that even though Achan does this thing in secret, stealing the devoted things, hiding them in his tent, thinking no one else will know, won't affect anyone else, it does affect everyone else. The entire nation of Israel loses the next battle, and so Achan is stoned, all of his family and livestock and belongings are destroyed, and his supposedly secret sin brought horrible consequences to all the people. And so um, when we get to our text today, going back to this Levite, he's trying to reconcile with his concubine. They're traveling back after he's uh, gone and, uh, and brought her back. Now we have these worthless men from the city of Gibeah. Their sin is horrible, but likely the vast majority of people in Gibeah, they had no idea that this even happened, let alone the whole tribe of Benjamin. But this one sin, it ends up ultimately affecting the entire nation of Israel. It results in this huge civil war, 
and by the end of our text, the, the near extermination of the tribe of Benjamin and tens of thousands of deaths of fellow Israelites. I think that there's a couple of applications we could make for that thought, that sin affects not just me. It, it should have an influence on me as an individual Christian not to take my own sin lightly, not to think that, you know, I, I can get away with this or I'm going to go ahead and do this, and it's not going to hurt anybody else. It'll it'll only hurt me. And I think that's that's one application is for our own selves that we would take our own sin seriously. I also think it it is a reminder to the church as a whole to take sin seriously, not to not to think that one little sin somewhere over there, it will have an effect on me too. It will have effect on, on a congregation. I'm, I'm reminded of the way that Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 5, where he talks about a little leaven leavens the, the whole loaf. That I mean, we're seeing that here in in the, the account here we've got in the end of the book of Judges. I, I also, and I'm just throwing several things out here for you, Pastor Wall, so feel free to, to pick up whatever you want, but I, I, also, I also wonder if there's not a bit of application to the way we see societal sins around us. So, so for example, the, the Church rightly speaks against the sin of abortion that we see in our society, that it is legal within our society for, for a mother to kill her own child, that, that that is legal. The Church speaks out against that, and, and rightly so. But I, I wonder sometimes if we don't try to separate ourselves from it as if it doesn't affect us at all. You know, because we're speaking out against it, then it, it doesn't affect us. And, and maybe, maybe this thought that no, sin affects everyone— might be a helpful way for us to think through through some of that as well. What do you think, Pastor Walla? Uh, so a couple things that you mentioned really um, were on my mind also. The the idea of a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Um, it very much is a noticeable thing in um, considering our our own sin um, and the sin of uh, within a family or the sin within a congregation and the need for if a congregation um, ends up having sin uh, that is known within it, that it must actually deal with it, as uncomfortable as that is to, to do. And, um, but it also then affects teaching. And so um, a little leaven leavens the whole lump when it comes to false teaching. And so just like sin, um, that affects the whole group, uh, false teaching um, that that can ultimately, um, in, on the surface, it might seem like, oh, no big deal. Uh, it's just a little bit. But um, ultimately, that can uh, form a foothold for the devil to uh, cause doubts uh, and ultimately to bring us to despair or uh, to leave our faith. The other thing, um, when it comes to our society, um, you know, more often than not, when we're in the midst of um, suffering and people often will want to know well are we suffering because of this particular sin um it's very hard for us to see the direct answer of that that's hidden to us certainly is known to our lord but he doesn't always reveal that to us um but is it because of um of sin and am i the problem or part of the problem Without a doubt, yes. Um, and so as, uh, as tragedies come, as we see um, horrible sins be shown, 
as Jesus teaches us and as uh, he would continue to have us do each and every day, he teaches us to cry out in repentance and say, O Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Um, so uh, we are we have this sin uh, that is revealed to us. And when we consider the big picture, why is it happening? Well, we don't necessarily know, but we do know um, that we uh, are in need of the Lord's mercy every day. Well, well said there. And I think I think, you know, it would be it would be wrong of an individual Israelite, for example, to to fail to look at this moment in repentance for himself. Like, well, no, I wasn't involved with the concubine and the Levite, so it's not my fault. I wasn't one of those men of Gibeah, so it's not my fault. And, and while that may be true in a very specific sense, that no, you you didn't lead to the, this specific sin was not yours so that all of this has happened, yet all of this is an opportunity for any Christian to examine his own life and to repent of the sins that are there, whatever those may be, whether or not they had a, a direct influence on this tragedy at hand, it is an opportunity to to repent. And so I, I think you drew us well, you said it better than I, I did, I, you, you drew us back to, to what we need to, to hear there. All, all of that, I, I think, helps us to just get the overall flavor of this text. And, and when I say this text, not just the verses we've got today, but the whole account is really filled with a sense of sadness, a sense of regret as uh, to go off what we, we started talking about, you know, how has this happened? And, and especially how has this happened among the people of God? These, these people throughout, they had the Lord's word. They should have known better, but they didn't. And so there's this, this sense of sadness that I think is there in the text. Yeah, I, I definitely sense that also uh, it's pervasive. Uh, we see this wickedness of men in Gibeah, uh, those that are described as the worthless men. And as we see them um, as uh, it's sort of the, the poster child of, of wickedness is the Sodomites in the Old Testament. And and they in Gibeah, they're acting just like the Sodomites. They're, they're doing exactly the same thing. Um, and on that night um, that we see what happens in Sodom, the Lord rains down fire in judgment against them. And Abraham had prayed, prayed that the city would be spared. If only there were even just as little as 10 uh, righteous believers there. And we learned that they're not, there are not even 10. And so the Lord goes and has mercy upon Lot and his wife and his daughters. And the rest of the city is destroyed. Um, and the Lord finds out that that the wickedness, uh, the outcry against the city, it was true. They were unrepentant. They were unbelievers. And this sadness, it carries uh, through many other accounts in Scripture. I was thinking um, especially back to Genesis chapter 6, when um, the Lord looks and he sees that there is this amazing not in a good way, this uh, pervasive um, amount of wickedness. And it says the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. And it tells us why it says, because the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. But Jesus um, also speaks of this uh, sadness um, and he's grieving over uh, the unbelief and also the wickedness of his own people who, again, should have known better. 
So this is in Luke 19, uh, verse 41, starting there, that Jesus, it's, it's the day of the triumphal entry. He's nearing Jerusalem, and yet he's weeping over the city. And he says, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So that sounds like he could be speaking to the Benjaminites uh, in the events right now. But um, we might also think of Jeremiah. He's known as the weeping prophet. Uh, we might think about the people as they come back and see the second temple after it had been destroyed and, and now rebuilt. And its, its glory is nothing near what it used to be. Um, but one more, and it especially ties in with the, the they should have known. And this is in Romans chapter 9 with the Apostle Paul. And he's reflecting on his own people, uh, his, his own people, the Israelites. And he knows, sadly, that the wrath of God will be upon them if they do not turn and repent. And he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. He says, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises to them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all blessed forever. Amen. But they missed it. Uh, and so that this sadness um, it is, um, it, it encapsulates this text especially, this civil war that's going on. We see brother against brother, horrible bloodshed, but uh, really picks up this, this whole theme that comes from the book of Judges, that people are doing what is right in their own eyes uh, rather than trusting in the Lord and uh, having peace and rest in Christ. Right, and that, and that really is the the sadness of this section, particularly chronologically speaking. I don't know that we can place this text very well. There was an indicator yesterday where you've got Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, that would indicate that this text probably comes actually more chronologically speaking toward the beginning of the book of Judges rather than right after Samson. That doesn't seem very realistic. So chronologically speaking, I don't I don't know exactly when this text is taking place, but just the fact that how often does the book of Judges deal with the people of Israel being oppressed by a foreign nation? It's a foreign nation that has come in and oppressing them. And here you have the people of Benjamin who have committed this great sin and are defending this great sin, they're being warred against by their own brothers. And just the, the great sadness from that, where there should be unity under the Lord's kingship and under his word, there is this great division, there is this great loss of life, there's an, an unwillingness to deal with sin on the part of this one tribe, and that just adds to the sadness of the whole situation. It's a, a terrible irony that the book of Judges will close in this way with this great division among the people of God who should be united under him 
and under his word. It is it is a great sadness, and it, it perhaps what makes it even sadder is that, at least at this point in the text, there doesn't seem to be much sadness on the part of Israel one way or the other. I mean, not that not that Israel is delighting in killing their brothers, but they they've been thinking that way all along that that this is what's got to be done so we're going to do it and and that's that and there there doesn't seem to be at least maybe not till tomorrow's text there doesn't seem to be that sadness within the people of Israel which just makes it all the all the sadder now pastor while we've got just a couple minutes here before the break any any concluding thoughts on that before we move on yeah you're right uh they, they weep when they lose their uh their thousands and tens of thousands uh, the, the first two days and uh, in the text tomorrow, uh, beginning of chapter 21, they are going to consider all that has happened and they are going to weep. Um, but there is uh, there is another emotion besides sadness that drives uh, what they are doing here. And uh, perhaps we can come back to this after the break um, that they uh, they have this anger um, and it is a righteous anger over what has happened. Uh, but the way in which it's carried out um, is almost, um, in some ways, emotionless. Mm-hmm. Um, they have to do this. Um, it's not pretty, uh, but they, there is a job that they have resigned themselves to and which, in fact, the Lord has uh, told them, yes, they are to do. And uh, so it is a painful thing uh, to watch, a sad thing, um, but um, the Lord is is going to purge this evil from the land. Yeah, I, w- I want to come back to that thought that their their discipline here, their anger, what they're doing is emotionless, and there there ought to be some kind of emotion attached to it. I think that's a, a good way to to set it up for the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFO. Going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, August 13th, and we are studying Judges chapter 20, verses 29 through 48. We've got with us Pastor John Walla. He serves at Bethel Lutheran Church in Bismarck, North Dakota. Pastor Walla, prior to the break, we left off our conversation with this uh, emotionless anger that seems to be evident here among the people of Israel, that they know what needs to be done, and they're just kind of going for it. And, and there's no real, it doesn't seem, sadness among them that this is is happening, that they're having to treat their fellow brothers a, as unbelievers. Take us further into that conversation. Yeah, so the, this meeting is called after uh, after the Levite uh, sends this message out to all, the, all of Israel. They all come together, and um, not a whole lot is described about how that conversation goes, other than that they just um, make this vow that they must do this. 
and uh, they must uh, carry this um, this anger out and purge the evil from their lands. And so um, they end up going to to Gibeah. They try to get the men to uh, give up these these worthless men. But Benjamin ends up defending their wickedness rather than giving them up. And so what ends up happening, as you mentioned, is they treat them from here on out as though they are not their brothers, but as though they are unbelievers. And carrying out this punishment, um, it is not fun. It is not enjoyable. And I, I think about those that serve in law enforcement, often uh, their work of needing to uh, use the sword, um, as, uh, as Romans 13 speaks of, it's not fun or enjoyable, but the law is there. It must be used to curb evil, to punish the wrongdoer. And same thing for those that serve in military, and uh, they bear the sword for a reason. But we also have um, a version of this within the church, um, that the, the church is the kingdom of grace, and yet also that when the Lord established uh, the office, that he also told his, his uh, apostles that he was sending out, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven, but if you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. And uh, there are instructions for what we often call church discipline. And that is filled with sadness um, because you've, you learn about a fellow believer's sin. Um, and if it continues to go on, that they will not repent of their sin. And you make this fervent attempt to bring them to repentance, but they harden their heart and will not repent. Then ultimately, the instruction that is given is that we are to excommunicate them. And what that's described as is that we treat them as pagans, as unbelievers. There's a purpose to all of this, and it's given um, multiple times in Scripture, but I was looking at Deuteronomy 13. Uh, the Lord sets a purpose uh, for purging evil, and he says that it is that the Lord may turn from the fierceness of his anger and show you mercy and have compassion on you. So uh, this comes then, the, the bigger picture of that text from Deuteronomy 13 is Moses is preparing the people to enter into the promised land, and he speaks of needing to purge evil from the land. And he says, this is Deuteronomy 13, beginning at verse 12, if you hear in one of your cities, which the Lord your God is giving you to dwell there, that certain worthless fellows have gone out among you and have drawn away the inhabitants of their city, saying, let us go and serve other gods, which you have not known. Then you shall inquire and make search and ask diligently. And behold, if it be true and certain that such an abomination has been done among you, you shall surely put the inhabitants of that city to the sword devoting it to destruction, all who are in it and its cattle with the edge of the sword. So a very parallel uh, type of a passage. Um, you, can, you can just imagine this uh, playing out here in Gibeah, but then follows that purpose. All of this is done that the Lord may turn from the fierceness of his anger and show mercy. So the point is the Benjaminites, they are acting like unbelievers and the way in which they are nearly exterminated in our text today, it shows that they are being treated like unbelievers. It's as though they are back to the conquest of the land. It's back to when the Canaanites were there and the Lord says they are to be wiped out. And 
it's it's really showing us that they are essentially unbelievers. Right. And I mean, and this is, again, the, the tragedy of what happens when Israel lives as if there's no king, and, and that being the Lord. They, the Lord's not their king. This is what it looks like, and it's not a pretty picture. Pastor Wall, let's go ahead and read the rest of the text. We, we read before the break that overview of this battle, and then the author gives us a more detailed account. So we're picking up here in the middle of verse 36 of Judges 20. The men of Israel gave ground to Benjamin because they trusted the men in ambush whom they had set against Gibeah. Then the, man, the men in ambush hurried and rushed against Gibeah. The men in ambush moved out and struck all the city with the edge of the sword. Now the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men in the main ambush was that when they made a great cloud of smoke rise up out of the city, the men of Israel should turn in battle. Now Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about 30 men of Israel. They said, surely they are defeated before us as in the first battle. But when the signal began to rise out of the city in a column of smoke, the Benjaminites looked behind them, and behold, the whole of the city went up in smoke to heaven. Then the men of Israel turned, and the men of Benjamin were dismayed, for they saw that disaster was close upon them. Therefore they turned their backs before the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness, but the battle overtook them. And those who came out of the cities were destroying them in their midst. Surrounding the Benjaminites, they pursued them and trod them down from Noha as far as opposite Gibeah on the east. Eighteen thousand men of Benjamin fell, all of them men of valor. And they turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Ramon. Five thousand men of them were cut down in the highways, and they were pursued hard to Gidom, and two thousand men of them were struck down. So all who fell that day of Benjamin were twenty-five thousand men who drew the sword, all of them men of valor. But six hundred men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Ramon, and remained at the rock of Ramon four months. And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin, and struck them with the edge of the sword, the city, men and beasts, and all that they found. And all the towns that they found they set on fire. That's the end of the text for today, the rest of Judges chapter 20. So, Pastor Walla, just, uh, we, we didn't do this earlier because the text does divide into these two parts, and so it's kind of hard to tell pull them apart too much. Just give us the the picture here. Uh, how What's actually happening in this battle? How is it that the people of Israel defeat Benjamin in this text? So up until now, the first two days, uh, they, um, however the battle had gone, apparently they didn't have this same kind of a strategy. Um, they, had, they had way more men, 400,000 men, um, and um, yet uh, they are approaching, and of course, uh, toward the end of yesterday's text, we also hear uh, that uh, perhaps there is uh, this repentance that is needed on their part. And so they fast, and they pray, and they offer sacrifices before the Lord, and now um, begins uh, this third day. And what happens is that their strategy today is this ambush. And Many of the commentators, as I was reading, uh, they keep on mentioning that this is essentially the same tactic that is used, um, described in Joshua chapter 8, when uh, the people are coming into the land and attacking the city of Ai. And as they are doing this, they also do this ambush. And so um, here's the scene. Uh, they're, they're attacking Gibeah, and uh, there is the force that comes um, kind of from the expected direction, and uh, they come against the Benjaminites. 
But then there is also this ambush group that is set um, hiding on the other side of the city. So when the main force comes to the city as before, uh, the fighting starts to get, get fierce. Um, in fact, about 30 men um, have died. And right away, the Benjaminites, they think, we've got this again. And the Israelites, they play to that overconfidence. They turn and they begin to make it look like they are fleeing. And uh, what this does is it draws their enemy out and away from the city. And uh, then the ambush group, they come in and they attack the city itself. And when they do, they set the city on fire. The smoke goes up. It shows the, the signal to the rest of the army. The city has been overrun. And not only does this show the signal to the other Israelites, but it especially is this morale killer for the Benjaminites. Um, their hearts sink. Um, now they have a battle on two fronts and they know that they're going to be defeated. And so our text then lists how this, uh, how this happens. 18,000 are killed uh, there as the Benjaminites see this and begin to run. And then a little bit further down the road, uh, 5,000 in the highways are cut down. And then another 2,000 as they're uh, running. And uh, so we get to this staggering loss. Over 25,000 are lost uh, from Benjamin that very day, which leaves only 600 left. And um, we may think, well, 600, um, that must just be of this, of this group. No, um, 600 men is what is going to be left of their entire tribe. Because now those 600 are hiding at the Rock of Rimmon. And what does Israel do? They leave them there and they turn back and they go through all the cities of Benjamin. And they spare none. They kill men. They kill women and children. They kill all the beasts, everything that they find. And they burn the, the cities and the towns. It is a near annihilation of their entire tribe. That's a, just a, a terrible picture to, to witness. Now, Pastor Wall, we've got about 15 minutes here in the morning, so I, I think we can consider it from two perspectives. First, from the perspective of Benjamin, and then second, from the perspective of Israel. So from the perspective of, of Benjamin, and I think you've, you've laid this out for us already in the way that the battle is, is fought, that Benjamin gets overconfident, it seems. And, and you just— when you when we talked about this yesterday, when you just look at the bare numbers, and not that numbers matter in, always in the book of Judges, they don't. But when you look at the bare numbers, Israel's got 400,000. Benjamin's got just over 26,000. They should have known that something like this was coming, and and yet they didn't. And I, I think, you know, you in some of the notes that you sent me ahead of time, you, you're, you're saying, and I think you're right, that this provides a bit of a picture for us, uh, for for us, that we ought to know that judgment is coming, and if we don't, then we, we end up fooling ourselves like the Benjaminites. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so this is referring back to specifically verse 34, um, where um, it says, uh, the Benjaminites did not know that disaster was close upon them, but they should have known. Um, they should have known um, going into this, this battle. It was inevitable. Uh, but not just for an earthly disaster. They should have known, referring back to that um, idea of that they are acting as unbelievers. They have turned against the Lord. They now stand as his enemies. And there is a day of judgment that is coming. Um, so 
thinking about this, um, we can reflect on this too, um, that um, Paul, when he's writing his letter to the Thessalonians, First uh, Thessalonians chapter 5, he says, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But then he says this to the believers. He says, you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. And he says, God has not destined us for wrath. He wants us to have salvation. And of course, Jesus uh, tells us um, over and over to be ready to watch yourselves. The Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So we are called to be ready. We are called to know um, there is a day that is coming. Um, But for those who set their hopes on this world or who set their hopes on their own righteousness, who rebel against the Lord, who act as unbelievers, there is a day of disaster that is coming. It is inevitable. But for those that are in Christ Jesus, he has already suffered the disaster for us. Um, He has gone to the cross He has already taken all of God's wrath, and it has been poured out on him in our place. And uh, so that leads us then to sort of the other side of this picture. Uh, Rather than uh, for Benjamin and the inevitable disaster that is coming, um, we have the promise that the Lord gives of the victory that is on the third day. And um, in our text, you know, this is a narrative. It's describing simply uh, the events that are happening, but... um, As Christians, it's very hard for us to pass by the phrase the third day uh, without considering the significance of the third day. Uh, We read scripture knowing that it all points to Christ. So uh, Jesus himself does this when considering the account of Jonah. He says, just as Jonah had been in the belly of the whale for three days, so would the Son of Man be three days in the heart of the earth. So we do this too. Uh, We hear the victory being on the third day and can't help but think of the deliverance that comes, uh, the promised deliverance from sin, death, and the devil, which Jesus has already won and which we will know in full on the day of his return. And um, C.F.W. Welther, he he pictures this in just this beautiful way in his Easter hymn, He's Risen, He's Risen. On the one side, uh, we could picture the Benjaminites uh, the first two days um, or any of the enemies that we fight against, especially the devil himself. And uh, so this is verse two of this hymn. He says, the foe was triumphant when on Calvary, the Lord of creation was nailed to the tree. In Satan's domain did the hosts shout and jeer for, for Jesus was slain whom the evil ones fear. But then... On the third day, Walter describes the change of events. So this is the next verse. It says, but short was their triumph. The Savior arose and death, hell and Satan. He vanquished his foes. The conquering Lord lifts his banner on high. He lives. Yea, he lives and will never more die. I, I was singing along with you, Mr. Walla. 
Good. That's a, that's a, that's a hard, hard, hard not to sing along with that 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 tune that Walter has. No, I I, I appreciate you bringing out the third day. I think I think you're right to to see that, um, and 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 to to put those two things in, in juxtaposition between what the Benjaminites should have known, yet the deliverance that the Lord does give to His people Israel, and and yet I think so from from that perspective still though the people of Israel, uh, granted we see that foreshadow. But at the same time, I think there's still that sense of, of sadness and tragedy, as we were talking about earlier, in, in everything that happens, particularly as we see how the men of Israel take this and how far they take this, that they, they literally leave 600 men to the tribe of Benjamin, and that's it. And that, that theme will come up, especially again tomorrow. That'll be the resolution of the, the book of Judges as to how they deal with that problem. But I mean, 600 men, and that's all. No women, no children. I mean, did they take it too far, is the question. Should they have gone that far? On the one hand, they're dealing with sin. They need to do that, we've said. But did they take it too far? That is the question. Uh, it's a really tough question. And it's one that, um, as I was studying and preparing, I found different responses to. Um, you know, on the one hand, uh, Israel basically treats their brothers, uh, their fellow brothers, like unbelievers, like Canaanites. And uh, yet, on the other hand, they're commanded by the Lord to do this. Um, So uh, one commentator, um, as I was reading, um, this is from Kylan Delich. Um, This commentator says this, For although, when forming the resolution to punish the unparalleled wickedness of the inhabitants of Gibeah, With all the severity of the law, they had been purged on by nothing else than the sacred duty that was binding upon them to root out the evil from their midst. And although the war against the whole tribe of Benjamin was justified by the fact that they had taken the side of the culprits and had even received the approval of the Lord, there is no doubt that in the performance of this resolution— and the war that was actually carried on, feelings of personal revenge had disturbed the righteous cause in consequence of the defeat, which they had twice sustained at the hands of the Benjaminites, and had carried away the warriors into a war of extermination, which was neither commanded by the law nor justified by the circumstances. So essentially, this commentator is saying, yes, Israel did go too far that they went beyond the authority that had been given to them by the Lord. Uh, He does concede that they had the approval of the Lord for the war itself, but that they went too far. But there is another opinion that I found, and that uh, was from Kretzman, um, and his approach is a little bit different. Um, He says it was a campaign of extermination, and he says it was much more savage than any undertaken against any of the heathen nations. Um, That's saying something. Uh, But then he goes on to say this. He says, but it was the punishment of God upon the tribe which had taken the part of the criminals of Gibeah. For the holiness of God cannot bear the abominations of the heathen in the midst of his people. All those who know his command and truth and still persist in doing according to the manner of the heathen should be excluded from the company of the believers, eventually to be punished by the wrath of him who is a jealous God. So he doesn't fully get to the, uh, the, the very end, but he, he mentions it's a campaign of extermination. Um, he mentions that they should be excluded. 
that it's the punishment of God. And um, so all of this, it, it brings up the question um, of authority. Um, what right did they have uh, to bring justice on their brothers? And, and we might consider that too, not just in this case, but the question of just war, uh, the question of um, anyone that has this vocation of authority. So think about Romans 13, mentioned it earlier. The government, we're told there, has um, authority to bear the sword, and they have this for a reason, to punish the evildoer. In fact, the government is placed there by God and given this authority by him. And so um, someone that serves as a soldier can serve under the authority given to him and enter into war without it being a burden on his own conscience. And at least as far as uh, that goes, a police officer can do the same. Um, he's called upon to carry out the law and punish the evildoer. But there are times, and in fact, many of our current events are uh related to um, a time when human sinfulness does take over and can take over and feelings of personal revenge, um, where the one who is authorized goes too far, exceeds the bounds of what he has been authorized to do. So what all this does is it circles us back to uh, sadness and remorse and repentance, uh, that repentance is needed. Um, we must repent. We must cry out, Oh, Lord, have mercy on me. Um, even for those that serve in a, a position of authority, um, can imagine that uh, their prayer each and every day must be, Oh, Lord, uh, grant me wisdom, grant me uh, the right thing to do, but have mercy on me, for I recognize that every day I sin greatly. Mm, yeah, a, a, wise, a wise word to, to always come back to that repentance. Pastor Wall, we've got just under four minutes left here on the morning as, as we— consider this text, this conclusion to the civil war that has now ended with Benjamin's loss and only 600 men remaining. What are we to make of it? And how does this text point us toward our need for Christ with about four minutes? As we draw to the end of this text and just kind of consider uh, what we have set before us, we have this, this phrase again, remember, that bookends this last section. There was no king in Israel. And that is a commentary, um, a sad commentary, not just on the political nature of the nation, because, yes, of course, they don't have a king, um, but it's even more a commentary on their spiritual nature. God is to be their king, um, yet the people are acting like unbelievers, and they're, they're chasing after their fellow nations, they're chasing after the gods of those nations, and just as uh, was foreshadowed at the beginning of this book, um, when they did not drive out all of the Canaanites, they are already being thorns in their side. And so we're leading right into uh, what's going to come in our next uh, book, First Samuel, where finally the people are going to cry out that they want to be just like the other nations, they want to have a king. And Samuel grieves over this, but the but God says, it's not you they're rejecting as, as a prophet. They're rejecting me as their own king. As you look through the rest of the book of Judges, most of the time you have a foreign army that is coming in and oppressing the Israelites after their rebellion against the Lord. And it, the Lord uses these other foreign armies to come in and bring his people to repentance so that they cry out to the Lord, and so that he may raise up a judge, a savior for them to bring about salvation. 
to restore them and bring peace. But this is a, a different account. This is an, an internal problem. Their own people are acting like foreigners. And the rebellion has brought about an oppression from within, uh, a wicked abomination against one of their own. And now, rather than a judge being raised up, um, singular judge, the whole nation unites as one judge against its own brothers. And so uh, they call for justice on these uh, that had these worthless fellows, but it's met with resistance and defense from the tribe of Benjamin. A full out war begins and the tribe is nearly annihilated. So the question that we might ask here at the end is, did it work? We're at the we're at the end of the book. Did they root out the evil? Is everything peaceful and good now? Well, of course, the answer is no. Uh, no, it's still a very sad state of affairs. And so evil, yes, it must be purged. Lawlessness, it must meet the sword. But this text shows us an even bigger picture, uh, an even deeper reality that um, all of humanity deals with, and that is the depth and depravity of human sinfulness. And we are very much included in this picture. It's the case for us that the deed that is uh, done here, um, all of the sinful deeds that are uh, part of this picture, it exposes the, the sinful nature of all mankind, that there is nothing that we can do. There is no war or bloodshed or political action that we can take that will fully cure the real problem which is sinful nature. We sin because we are sinful. So there is a need for justice um, that is far more desperate than what the nation of Israel can bring about through this war against the Benjaminites. But here's where uh, we're, we're properly brought to the end. And that is where the whole nation of Israel ends up serving as a judge to try to bring uh, this restoration and repentance and peace that Jesus takes the place of the whole nation of Israel. And he comes through the wilderness. He comes through the Jordan River. There he stands, and he is the sinless one. And so even as our eyes are filled with sadness over this terrible account of wickedness, even as we see our own sin, we look to Jesus and his cross, and we see a Savior and one who became sin for us, who purged evil from our midst by becoming sin for us, and suffering all of God's wrath for us. On the third day, the victory was won. It is won. Christ Jesus has been risen from the dead. And because Jesus has baptized us, we have already died to sin. And we taunt our enemies with these promises. We're confident of the victory that we have. Death cannot overcome us. Satan neither can do that. May the Holy Spirit continue to grant that we be given repentance and steadfast faith in Christ. His blood cover us and all generations. Pastor John Walla is the pastor at Bethel Lutheran Church in Bismarck, North Dakota, helping us this morning with Judges chapter 20, verses 29 through 48. Pastor Walla, thanks for being our guest today. My pleasure. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.